0: Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Are we ready? Well, you tell me. You're the ones. I don't
1: know. We are struggling to get our shit together there for a while, but we're here, (laughs) so let's do it. Right.
0: We've got feedback again. So much feedback. So much again. feedback. Oh. Printed out on actual paper. People are going bananas trying to guess your hiding spots.
1: I know. And I think I've given too much away about it
0: because people are really getting clever. <laughs> it's gone for me personally. It's gone past what a cute little game to like no, just No, people are getting annoying. serious.
1: This oh. is grand final guessing. <laughs> so... Go on the feedback from Nicole, she says, hello, Dee and Chanel. First of all, thank you. Good things, good no, things, no, good read things.
0: The, I like the nice oh, bits. Go first on, of all, thank all. you
1: both for such a wonderful podcast. Oh. I've just caught up to episode 13. I have my fingers crossed there are more episodes to come. You bet your bottom dollar there is, You,
0: can, that, you can bet count on that.
1: that. Yes. As much as the sky coming up tomorrow, you can bet on that. The sky doesn't move, Chanel. Oh, mm. The sun.
0: Sorry. It will. Yes. Sorry.
1: sorry." <laughs> <laughs> Okay, she said, I've been thinking about Chanel's dead body hiding spot. Mm-hmm. I'm certain it's a drain. Oh. She's wrong. Mm. But I'll read the rest because I'm a nice person. She said she, she said she would have to drop the body somewhere and that it's not a specific area and that there are many of them around. And honestly, who would ever find or notice a body in a drain. See, people are really listening. People are not just skimming over my words. They're listening. (laughs)
0: Years ago, there was a terrible case down on the Mornington Peninsula where a little girl's body was found in a drain. So no, why am I saying yes or no where your body would be? I
1: wasn't even listening to you. I'm just saying that's not
0: a good spot.
1: Okay, from Zoe, who's emailed us at deadbodiespodcast at Mm -hmm. gmail.com. Hi, ladies. Absolutely love the podcast. It gets me through the day at work.
0: Oh, that's lovely. Thank you, by the way, to everyone who has gone to the trouble of giving us feedback it's on so our Facebook or, or email. It's it's people lovely. people listening
1: to us at work because I just think this is just what I do for work. <laughs> I deal with dead bodies, but, you know, other people don't. I think I may have worked out where Shana would dump a body, an abandoned mine or quarry site, one that's now filled with water. Hear me out. My friends and I went to Ipswich, Queensland once and we walked around to an abandoned mine slash quarry for a swim and the cops were all over the place looking for a body of a missing woman. Mm. They didn't go for a swim. No, you wouldn't. No. Uh, I think if a body was weighted properly, you could safely throw a body down there and no one would ever find it.
0: She's wrong. Mm. They fall apart, don't they? Don't the feet and the the extremities come apart? They would after yeah. the bloat. See, people are really listening to the fact that I said down. Yeah, that's right. And I underlined it when I went for the petrol station because I'd picked up on down. Oh, they really after guessing? you poo pooed my on the roof, idea.
1: Because I honestly, no one, I honestly, no one has guessed the correct spot. And I still don't know if I'm going to tell people. Am I revealing when they guess it? I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to lie. I haven't decided.
0: We've bored got one more. With the whole concept. We've got huh? no.
1: Don't don't be bored with it. We've got one. More email. And guess who it's from? Who? Oh, Pasmo and Sabrina. Yes. <laughs> yes. Good afternoon. We hope you have had a good week. 11. Straight into it. 11. bang <laughs> Into a mine. Similar to the quarry. We understand this one is not as plausible, but we're putting it out there anyway. We think that if you could find a mine that wasn't used anymore, too dangerous to go near, nobody would have a good reason to go and look for the body and there probably wouldn't be any security cameras. You're wrong. They're but I love now. Sabrina and basketball for no, they're their persistence. Struggling.
0: I'm worried no, about they're them doing now. Doing really well because <laughs> I think they know they're struggling too. <laughs> uh, I've got a couple more bits of feedback. Uh, this is from Rachel on Facebook, and she had just listened to episode 14, uh, where we talked about the people who wanted to come and spring sprinkle the ashes of the former owner in my garden.
1: They did. They threw them over the fence.
0: (laughs) I don't know if they did. They did. Rachel says, Reminded me of the following. After my grandmother died and was cremated, my granddad sprinkled her ashes under the rose bushes in the backyard of their bungalow in the leafy suburb of St Ives. Soon after, my granddad sold the house and moved down the road from ours so he could be closer to Dad. I was told that the new owners of my grandparents' previous house, who were Chinese, I don't know why that's relevant, oh, I see, renovated the entry to the house in relationship Relation to the fact that Grandma had actually died in the house and it was bad luck, so it's a feng shui thing.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. Yep.
0: Uh, a few le- a few years later, Granddad died and was cremated. One Sunday afternoon, Dad visited the old neighbours at St Ives and at some stage during his visit, popped out to the yard and carefully <gasps> unwrapping Grandad, poured him over the fence next See? to the rose bushes to be with Grandma. People were
1: doing this and those people would have
0: gone, oh, why is there this pile of... Dirt here with fragments of teeth in it. It's granddad. Uh, and another one here, and this relates to episode 14 where we were discussing. Oh, you talked about the lady who buried her twin. Yes. And the, no, Dug the husband the in the backyard. There. Yeah. Um, this is from Candace on Facebook. She says, I went Googling. And found this regarding burying a body on private property in Victoria, anyway. I'm not sure about the other states or territories. I I'm love assuming. The people
1: in- Digging deeper on this. Yes, like this pun? is nice. Digging deeper. You've done the work. Oh. That was terrible. Pun, sorry. Here
0: till Thursday. Try the beef <laughs> veal. I'm, uh, she says, I'm assuming the laws are different in other countries. That's a disclaimer from Candice. Right. Don't go burying your body and saying that Sharnell and Didi on Dead Bodies podcast said that I could do it because you yeah. can't. So in Victoria, in Australia, um, the Cemeteries and Crematoria Act Says that burial outside of public cemeteries is prohibited. Oh, so, you can't in other do words, you can't, you can't, except oh. with the prior written approval of the secretary to the department, whose hair is in a bun, it's grey, and they probably have glasses that point up in the corners and flesh coloured stockings. A knee-length navy skirt and flats. something to be said about people that wear flesh-coloured stockings. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Thick
0: ones. Yeah. She is not going to give you approval, I don't think.
1: I wonder if anyone has been approved to bury a loved one in the backyard in Australia.
0: Well, the reason they don't do it is, or they don't usually approve it, is that they want to be sure that human remains are disposed of legally, appropriately and yeah. with dignity. And so you can't just be digging in. Well, you don't want Fido thing. to
1: run up the back porch with Grandma's leg in her...
0: Well that's part it of it. They said they generally up. um they generally don't approve them because Have I told you a
1: story about my cat. No. Had a cat called Pest. She lived till eighteen. Uh we she died. We buried her in the backyard and about six months later the dog dug her up and was dragging her around the backyard.
0: No, what sort of yeah. state was she in? She was
1: horrid and oh. it was the worst smell ever. And we walked out onto the I just it's just come into my brain then. Too many dead stories. <laughs> I've just remembered it. I was living in Dandenong and walked out into the back and was like, oh, something reeks out here. (laughs) And then there was my dog, Bluey. He was dragging the cat out by the leg.
0: And he would have been thrilled.
1: He was so thrilled. He also, that cat hated everyone. So he was thrilled and we knew it was the cat because we buried the cat. You know, when you go to the vet, you get one of those it's like a canvassy bag that they yes. give you the dead animal in. Yep. Yeah. So that was covered in dirt on the, <laughs> in the backyard so we knew he'd dug the cat up we made dad go back out and put it oh, back in. Oh, that's
0: even worse. Yeah, it was gross. That's awful. Yeah. Okay. So, well, that is part of the reason why they don't approve of it generally is yep. because they, they don't know who's going to be responsible for mm. maintaining the grave. They don't know who's going to own the land in the well, future. It could be thing. sold. Who's yeah. going to
1: live there after?
0: And someone could dig it up in the future. Yeah. Um, they say that they will sometimes give permission if there are pre-existing burials on the land. You have to be able to prove that there's a tradition of burials there, right. um, and it can depend on things like how deep you're going to bury it and all sort of stuff. But I, I read all through it; it's all blah blah blah. You know. They said at the end though, if you do, oh, so hang on, there's no impediment. In other words, you're allowed to bury cremated remains on private property. Oh. So cremated remains, you can pretty much go for it. You can put them anywhere you jolly well oh, like. That, yes, That means
1: that people are cremated everywhere. Yep,
0: you can put them wherever you want. But then there's a little thing at the sentence at the end that says, if you decide to cremate a loved one, it is important to discuss the details and requirements with your funeral director and your local crematory. In other words, don't be having a dash at that yourself. Yeah. Don't be doing a bit of crematorium work Then you know when you think about it, right,
1: when people sprinkle ashes, mm-hmm. obviously some of them become airborne. There's a really likely chance that people have inhaled other people.
0: Probably. Don't do it in the wind. I and don't know why I
1: thought about that, but that's a very likely thing, right? You know how they say <laughs> you eat four spiders in your life? Well, it's possible you've also inhaled part of a human. There's some fact That you eat at least four spiders, I don't know the number, a certain amount of spiders when in to- your life because they crawl into your mouth while you're sleeping.
0: No. Yeah, it's a
1: fact. It's 100%. No. Yes, it's that's true. No. You're about to say that's bullshit. It's not. Never. It's fact. I'm a journalist. It's fact. <laughs> I'm telling it's true. But I'm also saying that it's no. very highly likely because I think a lot of people, so for people that don't know Victoria, Great Ocean Road, Really long strip of road on the coast. I think that's a great – a lot of people are throwing ashes off there, right?
0: Probably, yeah. I think it's like
1: a destination for throwing ashes. Yeah. Well, that's a good thought. If you if you work somewhere where people are constantly coming and throwing ashes because it's near a beach, write to us and tell us.
0: I bet at the MCG they have a bit of trouble. Wouldn't oh. people always be wanting to go on the MCG?
1: What, and sprinkle ashes? Yeah. Reckon? Yeah. Like it would be funny. Oh, I shouldn't we say to, funny because people no, get mad when them. I say funny. But it would be interesting if there was someone who was working in a spectacular location and they would just constantly be like, oh, here's another family throwing
0: some ashes. I wonder, yeah, like uh, those big um, Ferris wheelie things that people Actually, go up in. I'm
1: going to go back to the dog. So you know the dog that dug up the cat? Yes. So when the dog died... We got the dog cremated, yes, and we threw his ashes in the lake where he used to like to go and he used to chase ducks. Aww. And when we threw his ashes in there, ducks came and ate them.
0: Oh no! <laughs> but we thought it was the circle no. of life, <laughs> like the ducks got one back. It kind of is, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: That's the dog I think I've spoken about that died, and I was devastated. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, the ducks ate him. They came in. Like...
0: That's a noise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think ducks have lips. No, but that was like a big noise. Anyway, I don't believe people eat spiders in their sleep. They do. No, they don't.
1: Someone write in and tell never us. i heard that they that's do.
0: A, no, how would you know dribble a bug? is coming out when you're sleeping? The stuff is not going in. I sleep
1: with my mouth open. <gasps> I, I do. I know. I do. Because my boyfriend has this thing where he takes photos of me while I'm sleeping and then he waits he waits until the next day around two o'clock and he sends them in the group chat. And it was a thing that my sister and and my boyfriend kept doing to me all the time. Like I've had fall asleep after a long drive in my sister's car. She'd take heaps of photos of me, would not say anything. That's so good. And then the next day in a group chat, I'd just be at work and I'd get all these photos of me.
0: You've just asleep. reminded me, many years ago, um, my I husband and I dead. had a house, <laughs> would do if you're yeah, asleep. Yeah, I know. Um, our, the bed, in our house, the bed, uh, the head of the bed was near mm. the window, mm. and there was a really bad thunderstorm um, at night. My husband sleeps like a log, yeah. like oh, he's out, he's gone. Right. And in the morning, I think I said something. To, to him like, oh, wow, did you see that storm last night? That was incredible, the lightning. And he said, oh, I thought you were taking photographs of me. So it, he must be like semi-conscious, was yeah. just aware of the flashes of see? the lightning, and thought I was photographing. But I sleep dead too. Do I you? could have
1: the weight of the world on my shoulders. I could have, I don't know, a lot of debt, a pending divorce, a yeah. cops after me. And I would sleep no problems. Actually, yeah, same. Yeah. I'm At a, a rock, rock concert, out.
0: Yeah. Can't mm-hmm. sleep on planes, though. Hate them. Mm, Got a sure. story for me? Do. Tell me a story. Sure do.
1: Now, it's always people think, you know, obviously death is terrible. Yes. And it's always terrible to lose a loved one, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So imagine your loved one's, your loved one's dead. I take them off to the morgue
0: and then they come back to life. No, is they this do. that thing where the muscles tighten and they look no, like they're No, they sitting legitimately
1: up? come back to life. So you get a call, hey, um, we know you're really upset that your mum died, but just letting you know she's in the foyer, she's waiting to be picked up because she actually wasn't dead. Surely that doesn't actually happen. Well, that's just I've made that dramatic, but... <laughs> it's not like you, <laughs> no, I've, much. I've, I've dramatised that
0: for effect. <laughs> God.
1: In 2011, I'm not going to say her name because I can't say it and only Dee does... Tries to do. Oh, you know, what d- Tries to say names that she can't. In 2011, a retired cook and grandmother was
0: hospitalised with health problems. What country? How hard can it be to do an accent?
1: Mm, no, I can't. It's. What country? I don't know what country she's from. Have a go at from. it. It sounds Russian, maybe. Ludmila Stebliskaya. It's so wrong. Mm, it sounds Polish it's to me. It's so wrong. Oh, could be. Don't know. Mm. Well, She was hospitalised for health problems. When her daughter called to check in on her, the hospital said she's died. It was a Friday night. They took her into the morgue where she was going to remain until Monday so they could have the funeral. When her daughter came by to get her body on Monday, the doctors said she's alive. Wow! They said she's alive. And they brought her into her mum's hospital room and she was there and she was alive. Now, she had survived the whole weekend Under morgue refrigeration. What? Yeah. And I don't know the temperatures in morgue refrigeration, but it's colder than your fridge, right? It'd be less than – what's a fridge? is like four degrees, five degrees, something like that. So she says, I have a vague recollection of the real cold, is what she said, and her skin had peeled from her body (gasps) because it was so cold. Oh, wow. Her family had spent the whole weekend planning her funeral, the whole time she'd been alive. And they said it was. They were ecstatic to have her back. It's a miracle I'm still here. She said.
0: Mind you, I mean, was it was it a full and active life she was leading? If they couldn't tell the difference. We don't want to hear anything really. really. A year later, she died again. Oh no! Yes, Mm. and doctors brought her back to life. Surely they (laughs) they did put a mirror to see if breath is coming out or something. They brought her back
1: around in a few hours. True story. She will not die. Not she dead? No, she's alive. She's still alive. She's still alive. Yeah. What? Now this one. Oh, you're gonna get you're gonna get upset about this one. Okay. In
2: Might Argentina,
1: a premature baby was declared dead just 20 minutes after birth. Mm-hmm. Twelve hours after she was placed in a refrigerated coffin, her parents went to hold her. One more time yep. and say their last goodbyes. And while her mum was holding her, she began to cry.
0: That is the best story ever. That has not made me upset. What an amazing child. Isn't it? That her, is incredible. The mum thought she was
1: imagining things, um, but doctors obviously rushed in and confirmed she was alive. Um, and they have called their daughter Luz Milagros, which means miracle light.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. What an amazing child. Mm. Wow. Isn't it good? Kick-ass baby. Yeah. That baby was not having any of that death business. That baby was going for it. That's fantastic. is good? Not upset at all. So, you know, just do a little tap, make sure that people are actually dead. Get it checked. And I think we did decide. Tap collarbone, shoulder. Yeah. Tap them. Hand.
1: But how amazing, though, if you think you're grieving your soul's dying because this person's gone, and then you get that call.
0: It would almost be annoying, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, we've just planned your whole <laughs> oh, funeral, God. and here you are. I've already been. Into what your are we going to do with all this food? I put all your clothes on eBay, Everyone's and now I've got to take all the listings down. <laughs>
1: oh, I took a just... work off on Monday for your funeral. <laughs> oh, I'd taken a week off, Please. Or what if you really hated that person? <laughs> Say it was your husband and you hated him. <laughs> Won't you just die?
0: Now, do you remember back in episode, I think it was episode two, you told us Ooh. about Ouija, the photographer yes, in New York, my favourite city that's not Melbourne. And we actually are lucky enough to have the author of a book about Ouija. It's called Flash by Christopher Bananas, who joins us on the line now from New York. Hi, Christopher. Tell us about um, Ouija.
2: Uh, Well, where to begin? Um, (laughs) Ouija was probably the greatest of uh, New York street photographers. In the 1930s and 40s, he was pretty famous here and became the guy who drove around all night and could get to the scene of the crime before the cops did. And, um, you know, sort of knew how to take hold of New York City and and, uh, get into its darkest corners and its uh, most dangerous places and do it with a sort of a sense of humor and wit and (laughs) whatever it took to um, get that night's news into the papers the
0: next day. Ouija was his nickname and I gather some people thought that he was psychic and you just referred to it then that he could somehow knew where the scene was going to be that he wanted to photograph before it had actually happened. Do you think he actually was psychic?
2: Uh, no. <laughs> he really cultivated that image. You know, one thing about what we do is that he was a, a tremendous um, press hound. He really, really loved to be written about. And so he kind of cultivated this great mystique about himself, that he was uh, a psychic. He had this very, very strong New York accent, and he used to talk about himself as a psychic photographer. <laughs> um... And, uh, you know, he said, ah, I get a tickle in my elbow and I just know where to go. In fact, what he had was a police radio next to his bed. <laughs> and he uh, he took an apartment directly across from police headquarters. So he had the radio on all night. And he had another radio next to the, uh, uh, bolted to the dashboard of his car. So he um, could be out of his apartment and in the car, you know, 20 seconds after a, after a report came over. And he just raced there. Um, and then once he was out in the car, he would keep listening and he could change direction as he needed, you know. So he what he would do, basically, was work all the time. <laughs> and that helped with the image
1: a lot. And so we have... I'm a TV reporter, and we have overnight cameramen, it's what we call them, and they do pretty mm-hmm. much the same thing. They listen to scanners. I think there's a movie called Night Stalker where they listen to scanners and we try to get their, you know, I guess... Right now we don't try to get there before cops but we try to get there while there's a scene and all that. He really started this, didn't he?
2: That's right. And in fact the director of Nightcrawler had specifically say, said that he um, he was thinking about Luigi. Right. Um that they were they were saying what would happen if he were acting so and the answer is he'd be working for T V instead of newspapers and, you know, running around like daily the other guys in P M Z. This was new then. He was at the time the only civilian photographer the police radio in his car. He had sort of sucked up to the police and managed to get the, the permit. Um, nobody else had one except a couple of print reporters.
1: What did people think of his work at the time?
2: It was kind of a mixed reading. Some people thought it was ghastly, you know, that it was morbid. He kind of loved that and played it up because, of course, we all love to look at it
0: picture of a crime scene, whether we admit it or not. Yeah. Well, we do. Um, But Christopher, that's what we talk about. And that's how... The show
2: is called The Dead Bodies Podcast. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Because, I mean, that was the first I ever heard of him was seeing some of those incredibly graphic images that he would take. And the fact that they're in black and white somehow makes them more startling.
2: Um, But I, I would also add that the fact that he was using a hard flash bolted to the camera was key to it, because what it means is you get very, very hard, intense uh, light at the center of the photograph and it falls off to blackness at the edges. So everything's kind of vignetted. Mm. And, um, but didn't
0: he have a special tripod as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, he did use a tripod from time to time. Mostly what he's famous for is, is the extra high contrast in the image. Um, that it's really, you know, the shadows are sharp and the whites um, the are white and the blacks are black. And uh, so that meant two things. One was that it was a high impact picture. You know, it, was, um, it created drama in that way that movie directors began to copy, and we now think of it some more.
0: What um, was his relationship like with the cops? Did they. I, I was going to ask that. Yeah, did they, was he a pest to them, or was he good because he was recording those scenes?
2: Uh, both. He was a person who knew all the cops. You know, it was um, the, the the media seems a lot smaller than the world, a lot more newspapers. He, uh, you know, he he would sort of schmooze with them all, and he'd he would hang out in the squad room, which is unthinkable today. Absolutely. Over the type that brought the news into the police from the outer precinct, and like that. And you know, he would do small favors for them, and they would. Was occasionally give him a lift if his car wasn't running. You know, but it was a lot chummier than it is now, a lot less adversarial in some ways. He said, you know, he would do things like when he was taking a picture at a crime scene, if there was a cop smoking in it, he would tell a cop, drop your cigarette because it wasn't supposed to be smoking at a crime scene. That's mm-hmm. so interesting because
1: um, I still do that now. What, smoke, <laughs> well, no, I tell, yeah, I tell police officers, so when I was on the crime round, my relationship with police officers was vital, um you know, all it took was for you to see a cop at a scene that you knew and they could tip you off, and I would say to cops, if I saw them smoking, can you move because we don't want to Rush, smoking okay. or okay. yeah abs- absolutely, and it's it's very similar what you're saying used to happen in Melbourne, where you know I hear stories of the old days about what crime scenes were like and journalists would hang out at russell street which is a sort of a precinct area in the city in melbourne and they'd hang out at russell street with cops in the office and go out when jobs happened. and now of course as you mentioned it's very clinical we don't do that anymore we don't get that kind of access so Mm. but i was also going to ask you does did police use any of his photos for evidence
2: um, occasionally, not often, he said he would get a request from uh, the police to f- or more often from the firemen to figure out something about, um, yeah. you know, causes. And, uh, more than that, he said he would get calls from insurance companies sometimes. Um, uh-huh. You know, if he was photographing like a car wreck or something like that and they were trying to figure out what had happened, uh, he'd get those calls. Once in a while from the cops as well same kind of reasoning you know if they needed some piece of data i mean the police had their own photographers sometimes in his pictures you see the police photographer at work (laughs) there's a there's an amazing ouija photograph one of the most gruesome and in its way beautiful um it's a portrait under the elevated train on the bowery in downtown manhattan and it's a night when it had so the streets are slick Mm. and what you see is four policemen standing around, one of whom is the police photographer, so he's got a tripod, and he's got the... It's a big old view camera, you know, the kind of... The cloth you throw over your head Mm -hmm. you see in old movies. So the four of them are standing around, and the police evidence photographer is photographing something on the ground. it takes you a moment to figure out what it is. But it's a severed human head. (sighs) Mm. And right next to it, one of the cops has put something down, and that something is a box from a bakery, a cake box with a little string around it. And apparently what was happening unbelievably is that they had needed something for For the head. And they had gone to the bakery and said, can you give us a
0: box? No! (laughs) That's like a scene from a movie or something. It
2: really is. And the most extraordinary thing about it, of course, is that there's this head on the ground next to the how is the photographer taking the picture has his head covered with the cloth. Oh, <laughs> oh, <good laughs> head comes out even. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Christopher, obviously, you've um, you've got images that Ouija took in your book Flash. Mm-hmm. Where do people see them? Where are they? You Image know, samples. they displayed somewhere, or are they kept, or where are they?
2: Yeah, his career was recognized in his lifetime. As, a, as I said, he got kind of famous in the nineteen. And although he was kind of out of fashion and his career was not going well by the time he died, his stuff was not discarded. So his stuff went to his uh, living companion, his girlfriend, and she left it all to the International Center of Photography, which is a big museum and gallery here in New York City. And they have 20,000 prints and 6,000 negatives and a lot of magazine articles and manuscripts and things like that. And they have had big retrospectives of his work. And... um, There are lots of books of his pictures, and uh, now there's a biography as well mine. And
1: why were you so interested in him?
2: Um, Well, I have a day job at New York Magazine. So I write and edit stories about New York City, and especially New York City history, all the time. And if you spend a lot of time on that, you run into Ouija pretty early, because he's among the most famous New York photographers. That said, there's lots of photographers out there who do good work, and are very interesting. And the last big museum retrospective of Luigi's work was at ICP in 2012. And I came out thinking, this guy is an amazing story. Um, he's, a, he's a huge character. He's this sort of life-cracking, cigar-smoking guy. He looks exactly like a photographer in an old movie, you know? Mm. And I came out of there thinking, he's a great story. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order the book. And I went home, and I discovered there was no book. <laughs>
0: So you wrote it. And to you. Oh, and
2: we are six years later, and here we are. And Christopher,
0: (laughs) what would you say are some of his most famous pictures?
2: Um, Well, his most famous picture, full stop, is one that he took on the opening night of the Metropolitan Opera in 1943. It is not a dead body picture, um, although he was most famous as a photographer of dead bodies. Um, The one at the opera shows three women, two are arriving. At the curb they 've just exited the limousine, and they are caricatures of a rich lady at the opera they they 're wearing white fur head to toe and more diamonds than you can believe <laughs> and they 've got these sort of tight smiles for the camera you know they're, they're they think they're being photographed of the society page and The third woman is next to them, and she is either homeless or close to it, and she is giving them the the most extraordinary sight ah, I can' imagine <laughs> um just this sort of like rolling eye. Um, it's half a leer and half a sneer, and it's it's uh, it's you know some mix of confusion and contempt. Now that and wasn't the, just
0: dumb luck that he found those three women juxtaposed exactly that way. Right.
2: The photo is called The Critic, and it's it's uh, it it helped make his career. Uh, as I said, that, uh, the Museum of Modern Art here bought a bunch of his photos at that point in his career, and that was the one they got first, I believe. And as was revealed roughly 40 years later he always said he just stumbled across the third woman the homeless woman Well, she wandered into the picture and he didn't even know her at the time and then when he was developing a picture in the dark room he spotted her there in fact he was a friend of his he had taken her out earlier that afternoon and poured a bottle of wine into her and got her drunk and brought her up to the opera house.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hang on a minute is this is this a very early version of fake news
2: uh, <laughs> yes it is <laughs> good heavens yeah he <laughs> He was not above setting a scene, let's put it that way. He didn't do it often. Um, you know, most of his pictures are of new scenes that you couldn't fake. they were crime
0: scenes. They look like they look. Yeah. Um, the dead body pictures that he took, the murder scenes and stuff, were there any of those, that, were, apart from the head in the cake box, um, <laughs> <laughs> were there any that were, became more well-known than the others?
2: Yeah, there's a truly great one of a, um, a gangster named Dominic D'Odato. A very small time guy but he was gunned down on elizabeth street in 1936 and um, it's it's just a perfect still life it's a dead body on the sidewalk in front of the restaurant and he's face down and he's looking away from the camera You didn't photograph his face and you barely see any blood you know he just looks like he's napping almost but then you notice about three feet from the body is a gun and about three feet from the body. Two feet from the body, there's a hat which has tumbled off his head. This one's not on his chest. And just it's, it's just a composition just still life. It's like a Cezanne, except it's a dead guy on the street. Yeah. There's another one that really is one of my favorites, if you can It's another guy who was knocked off, 1939, November 1939, um, a guy named Angelo Decker was done by him in the cafe on Prince Street in New York. And Luigi, when he got there, just as the took a look at it and he photographed the guy on the door of the cafe. But then he crossed the street and he took a portrait of the whole block. Mm-hmm. Because what he noticed was that every window in the tenements had a family peeking out of it. Two, three, four little heads mm-hmm. sticking out of everyone. So he said, you know, to me, this was drama. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's an amazing picture because you almost don't see the Corpse at first. but you notice is yeah. this tableau, and he called the balcony suits it "Balcony
0: a Murder." So he was an artist uh, in a way, wasn't he? Well,
2: that's that's the great question. At the time, it was hard for people to imagine that he was an artist. But it's interesting um,
1: though, and it's something I guess that would be very close to your heart is 9/11, and some of the most telling photos out of that are not just the photos of the planes hitting the towers, but of the people's reactions watching it.
2: Mm-hmm formal beauty to a lot of these pictures, yeah. which is, I think, what you're getting at. And, and yeah. you know, you're right. And I mean, they show they show humanity in its worst moments, and they have power from that, and the power sometimes takes
1: form of beauty. Yeah. Um, and that's what I've always said with all the crime scenes I've attended. For me, it's not so much the dead body that would irk me or stay with me. It was the people's reaction or families turning up and finding out that they're loved ones were gone, that is what would always stay with me. Mm. So, well, in
2: fact, that, that, that is something that we talked about quite a bit. It wasn't, I can't say it was a great innovation, because other people were doing it as well, but one thing that he did better than most news photographers of his time and came to sort of treat as a trademark was what I call watching the watchers. When mm-hmm. he went to a murder scene, very often he turned around and photographed the school kids watching it. Yeah. Or... Um, at a fire uh he would photograph the person who just got out of the building whose sister did not one of his more iconic photographs is of two women just sobbing and keening they there outside a tenement and they just found out that their sister and uh it's a mother and daughter and the second sister and her son had just burned to death
0: oh goodness
2: yeah, it, it's an extraordinary picture just because he sort of zooms in on their two faces. And the title he gave in, a, in his first book was, I cried when I took this picture.
0: Wow.
1: Well, thank you so much. We are so grateful for your time. And I'm also so grateful for someone that went and looked for a book, saw it wasn't there, and decided to write it. <laughs> the book is called Flash. You can buy it. Anywhere around the world, it's available here online. Uh,
0: definitely a good read. Uh, it's thing. actually in um, bookstores in Australia too, there through we go. Pan Macmillan. They're
2: carrying it there, terrific. I'm glad to hear it.
0: Thank you. Christopher Bananos, oh. author of the book Flash on Arthur Falig, better known as Ouija. Thank you. Sure. On the next episode of Dead Bodies. How many graves
1: do you think you've been in? <laughs>
2: I've always asked that question. Uh, I could be doing probably three in a day, depending on the depth of them. So, yeah, you're probably looking at, gee, 20 a week or something like that.
0: Gee, that's a lot, uh, over 41 years. I've just done a rough
1: calculation. It's about 30,000 graves.
0: Dead Bodies is created by DD Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.